You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Um, we are transitioning the Perch Pod over to a new podcast called the Cognitive Dissidents Podcast. The thing that I need you to do, it's a, it's a fairly simple thing, is go over to the Cognitive Dissidents Podcast and subscribe. We're still going to be posting here for the next six to eight weeks or so, uh, but in eight weeks, we're going to be moving most of our posting over to Cognitive Dissidents. Joining me on the podcast for the second time is Chase Taylor. Chase is macro strategist, i.e. the wizard behind the curtains at Pinecone Macro Research. Um, Highly recommend you check out Chase's work at pineconemacro.com if this is the sort of stuff that interests you. Uh, Thanks, Chase, for coming on. We had a great conversation. We recorded this uh, Friday, April 15th at about 2 p.m. in the afternoon central time here in New Orleans. So I think it'll be a week or two probably before this comes out. So if some crazy things happen between now and then, that's what's up. But I still think Chase uh, has been incredibly prescient so far um, since I've known him and have followed some of his research. And well, let's hope he's not prescient about some of the things he talked about in this podcast, because some of them are fairly pessimistic, but others are good. So cheers, Chase. Uh, Thanks, listeners. As always, we appreciate you and welcome your feedback, comments, ratings, all that kind of good stuff. Share us with your friends if you think we're doing a good job. Um, Take care, uh, and we'll see you out there. Uh, Chase, uh, thanks so much for being here. This will record after the the Cavaliers-Hawks game, but listeners, you can't see him. I can see him right now. He's in his Cavaliers regalia. Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you back. Appreciate it, Jacob. It's great to be back and actually headed to Cleveland tomorrow to catch a 40 degree high baseball game. So that's Cleveland <laughs> for you in April. It's what is uh they have a new name now, right? The the Guardians, Gar- yes. Guardians. All right. Yeah. Cool. There we go. Um my Atlanta Braves I guess are at some point going to get with the program too, but let's not go into that. Let's go into I honestly don't even know where to start. Uh there's so much stuff going on. I, I based on some of the stuff you've been writing lately, um I wonder if the wage price spiral is the thing at the top of your mind or, or maybe the thing that we should start with because I mean everybody's talking about inflation and I thought your take on on it was extremely well differentiated so why don't we start there and why don't you tell our listeners why wages are keeping you up at night yeah so I think really my at the end of the day my conclusion is that they aren't keeping me up at night because I don't think it's going to be a problem the way some people do hmm. uh, it's kind of funny like like almost everything in macro right now the you know the war kind of interrupted everything you thought you knew and you kind of had to like reevaluate some stuff which for me included obviously inflation uh I, I, you know kind of did a deep dive on on wages because i felt like the only way inflation was going to stick around in a, in a really ugly fashion was was if we had a wage price spiral where wages just would not stop going higher and that was that enabled prices to keep moving I really don't think that's going to happen. I, I think wages still can kind of roll over. And I would call it the second half of this year, and, and especially if you know growth is going to slow down uh, markedly the rest of the year. Um, if you, if you look at how many people, and I and I wrote that piece uh, a couple months ago now, but if if you looked at just how many people were out of the labor force due to either COVID directly or kind of indirectly by kind of parsing through the data, it just became clear there were just millions of people. They could still come back into the workforce, um, and then obviously, you know, you have a lot of people that thought they retired, maybe that 
all of a sudden <laughs> gas prices and, and food prices and how much it costs them to buy a car, like may, maybe like, you know, some folks in their sixties or something kind of realizing oh, I better get back to work. And the data is showing that uh, uh, the older cohort is going back to work. So I, I think, I think the supply of labor is going to be a problem in the future, but for the next year or two, just, just isn't. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that, I mean, it's great to be Gen Z. It, it seems like they're getting all the benefits of this. And maybe this is just my bitter, like geriatric millennial self talking, because I remember when I had to work for $200 a month as an intern, like post 2008 financial crisis, but it seems like they're, it seems like Gen Z is good. And like, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for them in terms of jobs. And then it's almost, it's almost like they're going to get their own little boom period. There is, am I taking it too far? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think, I think now that DC realizes they have the fiscal lever and uh, obviously it works really well, too well at the moment, but, but it, it, it kind of is a realization that anytime you want to uh, get full employment and get the economy moving, you just kind of pull that fiscal lever and it'll work. Uh, so I think they will probably have a tighter labor market than, than we experienced, especially for the last decade of, you know, secular stagnation that, that it is not going to have to deal with that. There have small bouts, you know, there'll be problems, but anytime you have that happen, they're probably just going to have a, a fiscal and monetary response to kind of help, help back them up. And if you look at the data, like the, the youngest people and, and the lowest educated people and the lowest you know, earning are, are the ones getting just an incredible wage gains. The, the youngest cohort, like it's over 10% a year right now. So I mean, it's so easy to, to look at wages and go, yeah, but they're negative on a real basis. And, and obviously they are for a lot of people, for most people, but it, some of these, you know, younger groups, they're, they're not like they're, they're actually beating inflation, even with inflation being over 8%. Yeah, I wonder how that's going to play out. I mean, I think it's good. And I think you pointed this out. It's good from an inequality perspective that some of these lower wage workers are finally catching up because they never did after the 08 financial crisis. Exactly. Um, you know, after the 08 financial crisis, like the upper class has rebounded fairly swiftly, but the lower classes never really did. But there's something different here about class versus younger workers, because if it is just going to go to the younger workers, then you're going to get, a, I guess you're going to get this weird dumbbell type thing where like the boomers are great they're retiring and all their great investments and all the things they got and then the young guys are feeling good about themselves but everybody who was kind of in the middle is in this in-between phase where you never really got to take off and i i wonder i wonder psychologically what that what that does to the market maybe i'm i'm blinders because i'm in that middle thing and it, <laughs> it feels slightly unfair but i don't know I, I i went away thinking about that from from what you wrote yeah, and it's funny you mention that because, like, I, after writing it, I had never really stopped to think about it. And I'm, you know, I'm a millennial that has has had a rough time throughout this situation. Although working for the government, you're a little bit, you're, it's it's a little bit different. But mm. but even there, like most years, you know, you're getting uh, even the government was given like a you know here's your one percent, maybe if you're lucky, a two percent raise. Uh, and it's not like you know rents were gonna were going down along that time or or anything. So. Um, yeah, it, it, it's something worth thinking about, especially from uh, the political standpoint where you could end up in a situation where the youngest and the oldest kind of see eye to eye in, in a way because everything's going well for them. But then you you have, you know, some, some people in the middle that are, are still struggling. Um, and, and, and clearly, like the, the erosion of the middle class has already been a, a significant theme, but maybe it's sort of the erosion of a, the the middle class, you know, as defined by age instead of income can, can become its own, you know, like awkward, like voting block. Well, yeah. And I was, I was doubly fascinated because you had a great excerpt from a piece that Adam, 
Adam Tooze wrote about kind of the wage price spiral in general. And he he called out something that I've been thinking about a lot because the only times that wealth inequality in the U.S. Have, had been at these levels before COVID was sort of pre-progressive revolution, like early 1900s. Mm. Um, you know, Great Depression sort of periods and then the 1970s. And you really had political revolutions in the United States. They weren't, well, I mean, some violent things happened actually in the 1930s and even before then. But, sure. you know, relative to most countries, they weren't violent. And I I don't know, I, I always thought that that was going to flip. But in some ways, the the path that you charted forward to me and the way you checked sort of the conventional wisdom about 1970s inflation hanging over our heads um, it, it made me walk away a little bit more bullish about the situation in the United States than before. But then I also don't understand how, like at the same time that maybe that's happening, you've got all this political polarization and the country is even more divided than ever. So do you think that maybe that starts to resolve if your thesis is right? Or are these sort of two separate paths and polarization has nothing to do with the inequality issues? I know that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good one, though. Um so I find this really interesting I, and I don't, I don't think I have like a, a great grasp of it or like a really good answer, but you know, I, th- I think what we all do is just assume that inequality is, is essentially what drives this polarization. And, and I, I think we all kind of blindly disassume that. Um, and I, I know, I know I have, but, and I've always kind of looked at it as, okay, well, if we just kind of fix that, it, just pull the lever there and fix that inequality problem. Like everyone will just chill out and everyone will like each other again. And we don't <laughs> have to vote for, for crazy people. it will be great. But I mean, if, if you look at how bad the divisions are between like urban and rural, like maybe if you just give urban and rural people all a great raise, they still don't understand each other. So they don't like each other and they still vote for their own version of crazy to try to stop each other. So I, I hope that that is like a magic fix. And I hope, we continue to kind of close that gap. I think it's very possible um, to close that gap, but I do worry that maybe it, it's not the magic kind of formula to get rid of, of the polarization. And obviously, you know, the role that social media plays thing and the internet plays all these, all these kind of like amplifying uh, network effects and everything like that, that is, it makes it scary. It makes it makes you wonder like, again like if you just give people money like if it just makes everything go away maybe maybe it won't and i think in the past it kind of did like if as long as everyone had a decent job and, and they could take care of their family like politically they're they're fine maybe identity politics being so extreme now like people want to win you know ideologically they don't just want to have a few extra bucks and and be able to pay their bills yeah and it's it's funny i've always been somewhat dismissive of social media as a as a sort of negative force i just saw it as you know this is another way that human beings communicate we've come up with new ways to communicate all the time why is it that different but i do think there's something to this idea that folks are being siloed in their own communities and only listening to the things that they agree with because like when and and this is the ironic thing about things like the internet or even television it was supposed to be this amazing democratizing connective phenomenon and it was for a while. It seemed like for a while, for the first time, we were all experiencing the same things at the same time, and we could talk about them and like engage with them like never before. And the thing that I'm really struck by is that now everybody has their own... And I, I also think that it, it's hard to think about how markets are reacting too with this, because it seems like everybody has their own little narrative and their own little place where they go to for information. And even though the same things are happening in the world, they're being interpreted completely differently. And we have no relationship 
to each other anymore. That's just in the United States itself. It's even more true globally, where arguably it's it's been even worse. And I I don't know. I wonder if that has something to do with our with the way that markets have been, I don't know, kind of diverging all over the place. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting thought. I, I at the end of the day, and I know what you mean. Like I, I do think social media gets like this really extreme. Uh, reputation and obviously I can't remember the name of it. That Netflix documentary was, was kind of like fan of flames of that. But at the end of the day, like I think I think most people have experienced it on, on enough of a level where you realize it's happening. Where maybe you have someone in your family that was you know, let's let's just call them normal, and then they got into some, some Facebook group and they started like you just binge reading stuff from there. And the next thing you knew, like like this person that you knew was like really well adjusted, like normal person is just like extreme in their political views and saying things that are just obviously not true or kind of like unhinged. And, and, and that's could easily be from either, either side of the, of the political spectrum. Um, so I, I, I do think that it is real. I've experienced it myself. Like I, I remember like when I was in college, I, I was a bit of a, a, a political like firebrand activist type and, and, <laughs> I was, a, I was just the king of only, only like consuming the things that I, that, you know, that I agreed with or, or finding weak arguments to, to poke holes through or something at, at most. Uh, really, I, I credit markets to kind of reforming me because markets, you know, those take all your money if that's the way, the, the way you roll. So, um, <laughs> I, so like, I mean, I've seen it myself. It, it, I haven't been on Facebook in many years, but I, you know, whenever I was on there, like I, I could see it going that way, but, but for whatever reason, I, I always notice it more with, with like older people, like as you say, aunts and uncles that, that, that like millennials may have. So things like that were just where that echo chamber gets like really extreme. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but we're getting philosophical. Let, let me yeah. ask a little more, more tactically. Uh, one of, one of my favorite things from this piece you wrote, I actually typed it out cause I wanted to make sure to say it. Uh, you, you wrote about yourself, uh, you know, previously you had predicted inflation when everybody else wasn't. And you said you're still an inflationist and you do think we've started a secular shift. But in, in Qs 2, 3, 4 of 2022, we're likely to show significantly fading inflation exactly at the point that the financial world decides it's a good idea to extrapolate the current high inflation trend. And fading dumb extrapolations is how you make money in markets. I thought that was a great line. I think it's a very prescient insight. Although I will say, it feels like everybody who knows anything thinks the Fed is making a big mistake and is going to have to reverse course. But then you would think that everybody knows that the Fed knows that it's making a big mistake and is going to have to reverse course. So I wanted to ask you to kind of unpack what you're thinking about inflation a little bit more and then to talk a little bit, you know, just give us a taste tactically of what are some ways to play those dumb extrapolations. Yeah. So and that that is like a perfect example of like the war kind of messing with with the thinking a little bit at least. So so I was I was long euro dollar futures, which is just a way to bet on less and you know less rate hikes um, than than expected essentially uh, be, because I didn't think we were. This is like when we were like, oh, we're going to probably hike six seven times in, in this year, and I was like, okay, that's too much. That that's crazy because inflation is going to fade in the second half, especially. Hmm. Now, granted. So as soon as the invasion happened, I just, all that spiked because everyone thought, you know, like, well, okay, well, rates are going to go down and people were jumping in treasuries because of fear. I just used that opportunity just to completely get out. And I actually stayed out of that trade until it was either last week or the week before I started to get back mm-hmm. in. Because I, I, yes, like obviously energy and, and food inflation are probably going to be 
you know, significantly stickier than they would have been. But also like that, that energy and food inflation is going to slow growth, which is in, in, a, in a sense kind of self-regulating. Um, so I do still think inflation can, I, I'll say, move lower in the second, especially in the second half of the year, um, more so than, than people expect. And especially than I think the Fed currently expects. If you, if you look back, if you just go back one year and look at all the you know, prominent, famous, let's call them economists, including the people at the Fed and what they were projecting for inflation, or, or go back one year, two years, 18 months, however, however you want to. I mean, none of them saw this coming. Like it, this, this outside of, you know, a couple, a couple folks, like no one really saw this coming, especially the Fed. To me, it was painfully, obviously coming. But like, like, like I wrote in the piece, like now everyone's just extrapolating, oh, like, well, it's here forever. Like, but that, <laughs> but that's just not, that's not how these things work. I mean, if, if you look at, okay, well, why did we have the inflation? Most of those reasons are kind of fading away, I think. Uh, obviously, that giant fiscal impulse is over. All the money that folks got and saved up during that time is over. Now people are putting money, but they're putting, putting purchases back on the credit card. They're probably not going to want to keep doing that too much. Um, you know, food, food and energy and rent is taking a significant chunk of people's paycheck now. And, and you know, hey, real earnings are negative for most people, like I mentioned earlier. All, all these things are terrible for growth. Um, so I, th- I think growth and inflation both can fade significantly for the rest of the year. And, and when it comes to like, you know, well, like, what do we do about that? It, to me, it, it's, it's simple. It, it, and it's mostly the kind of the fixed income game it, it, at this point, you know, short end rates are just exploding higher. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think this is a fed policy mistake and they're going to have to kind of backtrack. Um, and, and, and it wasn't really only a few months ago, I was saying like, Hey, like no one thinks they can pull off, you know, a soft landing, but I do. And now I just don't because that was when they were saying kind of like six rate hikes, no, no 50 basis point hikes. And since then, you know, we've got that number up to like nine. And now it looks like we might do a 50 basis point hike once or twice, or maybe even more. Uh, they're going to go from QE to QT essentially like overnight. And they've already promised that the quantitative tightening would be um, a lot more aggressive than it was last time. So, I mean, we are hitting the brakes so the way I see it is, is we hit the accelerator uh, during the, the kind of post-COVID like stimulus era. We hit the accelerator way harder than policymakers realized or economists. And now I think we're hitting the brakes way harder than anyone realizes. So that's why I think you get this reversal in, in growth and inflation that, again, is going to catch everyone off guard. And, and one, thing, one thing I'll add to, um, it's something, something I said on Twitter, uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago was there's going to be a lot of wage pressures, despite the fact that the unemployment rate is not that good. And that's going to like really surprise people. And that happened now, you know, now like unemployment rates pretty tight, which I, I actually was able to get a lucky guess and say, we'd get under 3% by the end of the year. And we did at 2.9. But now I think you kind of have the opposite problem where if we have really good, you know, kind of um, jobs numbers, people are like, Ooh, that's really inflationary because labor's getting tight. But the reality is that just means a bunch of people are coming back in the labor market. So if we see that, that is that's that's great sign that, that the jobs are going to be, um, you know, more more and more people coming back in the labor market. It's going to ease inflation because it's going to ease wage gains. Although I think we're going to get to a point where labor even has problems because the the economy is so weak. Uh, which which that's going to make it really interesting for the Fed if you know, say inflation is still five six percent, and all of a sudden you know, there's a lot of layoffs. Like what what do they do? Yeah, they're gonna. And, have and, to, and right now, when you, when you have when you have the most dovish people on the Fed as full blown hawks quoting, uh, 
quoting like the most hawkish people in history like it's just it's pretty clear like there is no doves left so it, it's going to take a while to turn that super tanker around whenever they have to go back to being dovish yeah there's no perspective i, I don't i can't say that there's no perspective left because it feels like there's no perspective from them ever um or at least no long-term perspective um but speaking of stuff that changed as a result of the war um Let's talk about corn, which you were writing about October 2021. I've been banging on the table about food prices, too. Uh, yep. is, is that your most successful recommendation ever? And, and do you think that it was because you got it right or just because uh, Russia decided to take a bunch of uh, basically a big bazooka to the to global grain markets? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely not the most it's not the best call I've made. I, I think getting coal and natural gas right over mm-hmm. the last couple of years was, was definitely more profitable. But Corn has, has worked out great. I, th- I still think that can actually go a good bit higher. But I, I think I was, as part of it was just being right. But but most of it, if I'm being honest, like I, I think is really the, the the war, the war and weather both. I mean, what weather hasn't cooperated for corn? Um, you, you have you have you know it's, it's it's very dry in the corn belt in the U.S. It's very dry in Brazil and Argentina. So that's a problem. And then you know the the possibility of pulling uh, Ukrainian corn off the market and really for me like my that my thesis came down mostly to just one thing i think natural gas is gonna be really expensive and i think that's gonna make uh fertilizer really expensive and that's gonna make corn really expensive like super simple thesis um now with that said i did know you know at the time of creating that thesis like hey like i kind of have a right tail here like if if russia really does uh invade which i thought decent chance then you know obviously natural gas in europe is going to go through the roof and they're going to they're going to have to limit how much how much fertilizer they're they're making things like that and and that would that would bring up fertilizer prices globally um that i mean that was obvious but it's not like i was making the trade based on that by any means like so a lot all the money that has come into corn based simply on the invasion like that i can't take any credit for that that's for sure yeah, it, it's an interesting one too because I'm sure you saw that the now with the Chinese COVID lockdowns, they're worried that the Chinese are not going to be able to plant corn or that corn plantings are going to be disrupted in China. And China's been acting weird in general. I mean, kind of bidding up some of these agricultural commodities, which is not normal behavior for them to bid things up like that. And you also, you know, I, like corn plantings in the United States are down, but they're down four to five percent. And soybeans are only up a little bit, kind of incrementally. We had. Um, Neil Townsend was on this podcast a couple episodes ago, and he said that, you know, the most important thing from his perspective right now globally in terms of global food markets is what is the corn yield going to be in the United States for this upcoming season? And if it's anything short of last year's record, like kind of global grain markets are in trouble. So all that stuff already scared me. And then Biden's talking about ethanol. And I don't know, I wanted to douse myself in ethanol and light myself on fire. I, I don't. That's weird. I, I don't get it. Like, why are we still doing the ethanol thing all these years later? I mean, yeah, the, that's, that's the, a tough the, trade-off. Like, do, do you want do you want cheap energy or cheap food? And and yeah, but I, I didn't get it either. Granted, like it it it, it is small. Like that's it's like one percent of gas stations can even can even actually hold that stuff. So like, I don't think it's gonna be a big deal. But it is still uh, uh, awkward. I, I guess maybe it comes down to voters really care about gas prices, and, and he just needs to be seen as doing something. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just, I was also just saying that to your point though, about, I mean, if China does have disruptions or if the corn yield in the United States isn't quite what it should be, or if South America continues to be mired in drought, I mean, 
it does feel like there's more legs here to go. It doesn't feel like corn is is done kind of on its upward path. Do you feel that way or are you starting to put the brakes on? So I, I, I took a third of my trade off um, and, and I'm long December future. So basically to capture this, this year's mm-hmm. entire crop, it was the idea. And uh, a third off for no other reason than like, I mean, whenever I was writing about fertilizer, no one cared. And now like, I, I think everyone on my timeline is a fertilizer expert. Um, <laughs> it, it's being written about so much. Like the, the food angle of the war has been, I won't say just well covered. It's been too well covered. Like people are, are like, going back to the extrapolations and like making small numbers too big. Pe- people have kind of blown some of it out of proportion as if, as if, you know, there's no storage of any of these uh, grains in the world as if, no one else produces them. Like it's kind of like a, a, a little bit of a overreaction in some ways, obviously like it's worth overreacting to because it, 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 it's, it's so important, um, which is why you've been covering it for a long time. You've been doing a great job with that. Um, but at the same time, I do think some of it's an overreaction. So part of me just wanted to take some profits just be like, I'm, I'm such a sentiment driven person. When, whenever I see everyone agree on something, it, it, it really worries me if I'm in that trade. Um, and, and on the flip side, if I see everyone agree on something, and I look into it and I, maybe everyone's wrong, but that's, that's kind of where I source my trades. So, um, that worried me a little bit, but just still looking at the fundamentals. Um, now what, what the government is showing is they do think that corn, corn will, there'll be more corn planted this year than, than soybeans for only the third time in history. Um, so I guess that, you know, that is significant, but more, yeah. more, more soybeans than corn. You mean? No, the opposite. It's it's almost always more more soybeans than corn planted. So oh, this man. year would be only the third time for more corn corn than beans. Um, eighty three, and and it was one other that weird year where I was like Jimmy Carter, somebody like sold a bunch to somebody. I can't remember what that was, but <laughs> it was strange. Um, but but it's it's not by like a lot. It, it and if you look at the predictions for for acres planted and for yields, I, to me still both are just way too high. I, I think especially yields like you, you you pull out a decent amount of fertilizer and and yields are going to have a problem globally uh especially like um so i still think some of those predictions are a little aggressive and and you know the futures market and the ags they, they pay a lot of attention to those wazi reports and they move markets so if i'm right that they're still kind of overestimating those yields then then price you know can still move a lot higher and obviously we always have the the kind of right tail of weather if if they're not able to um have a successful like planting season or there's weather issues with the harvest or we have another like freak wind event that takes out a bunch of corn like we had um like well, last year the year before like you, you just never know with that so there's, there's always that that uh, possibility that weather kind of creates its own problems yeah i um it really resonated with me what you said about how everybody's a food expert or a fertilizer expert and i i'm I'm sort of with you on people overreacting a bit too much because i mean i started writing about this literally the week after the pandemic like you could see that food supply chains weren't doing very well and that this was going to be a bad time that we were kind of already on that 0809 trajectory but it's it's gotten so bad that even i'm starting to pump the brakes because i mean this is really in some ways a logistics story like yes there's on paper there might, might be wheat here or corn here but it's about how do you get it from point a to point b and can all these other things work together and are there substitutes and right now where we are there's a couple countries that are screwed like tunisia yeah. is screwed i have no idea what tunisia is going to do i love tunisia it's one of my favorite countries i'm really pessimistic about that these protests in peru some of what we're seeing in pakistan like the parts of the market that are really dependent you're starting to see it the thing that makes me nervous is that you know and 
I won't name names, but there are a lot of experts out there calling for great famines and the whole civilization is going to collapse, all this nonsense. And like, you're right that we are a couple freak storms and maybe a prolonged drought and this, that, or the other thing away from that, but we're not there quite yet. We're kind right, of on this knife's edge where like, yes, things are bad and it makes people like me nervous because one, like put a, another couple bad things in the hopper and they can get bad. But, and then this is, I mean, Philip Tetlock writes about this all the time. The folks who are out there prognosticating doom are the ones who get covered and are the ones who people listen to. And it's just this endless feedback loop. Um, this is only tangentially related, but it's something I've been working on for a while and haven't quite gotten the confidence to pull the trigger on it. But I wondered if you had a view on cotton, kind of mildly related to corn in the sense, you know, major U.S. agricultural commodity prices there are really, really high. And some of that is due to the way cotton futures work. There's kind of a weird infrastructural problem to that. But do you have any thoughts on cotton? Have you been looking at it at all? So I sadly have not like traded it much this year but last year i was i was long cotton for a good chunk of the year it was and honestly i just to be super transparent it was mostly because i just loved the chart it, mm -hmm. i mean it was just just beaten down so badly for a long time and it was kind of like ob it was making obviously an obvious technical breakout um so i went and, you know did a little bit of homework on it but not not a lot and a lot of it really comes down to to weather in texas and if you, whenever you get a lot of, and, and where I'm from, and I, I grew up on the on the Gulf Coast in Texas, and and we we actually grew a lot of cotton there, and and yeah, it makes a big difference when you don't get enough rain down there. So, um, that that part kind of like worries me that that maybe Texas actually finally gets some rain in the summer, and 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 then it, you know it's not as bad as as it's kind of getting priced in at this point because I mean it's just gone straight up for for the last mm -hmm. couple of years now. Um, but outside of that, like I haven't done a good enough deep dive into cotton in the last year, year and a half to, to have like a really firm opinion. I just don't know where supply and demand is well enough at the moment. Yeah, well, if you get any free time, funny joke, uh, d take a look at Cotton and tell me if my spidey sense about being about maybe going short is crazy or, or maybe whether I'm onto something. Um, let's move on to sort of the big one, which is energy. Um, you're you're the guy on energy as far as i'm concerned you've been kind of right every step along the way from my perspective so um you know russia ukraine war happened we threw out all the old assumptions what do you think is going to happen going forward the next six to twelve months is this oil 200 a barrel and opec can't possibly meet uh demand or do you think that that is overwrought kind of where are you for the big three hydrocarbons yeah so i i think i think oil really is still just kind of like as bad as it has been at any at any point and my bullish thesis going back really a couple of years has been like kind of like the point where this thing kind of gets uh, unhinged is when everyone realizes that OPEC doesn't it, like they don't have enough to, to make this problem go away. And I still think that's true. Um, and, and the interesting thing is they kind of maintain that they have, you know, X million barrels of of capacity left. But if you look at a lot of the quotes that have come out of from their oil ministers, like they've made it very clear, I would say for at least six months, hey, like this is a problem. Like we need the rest of the world to invest. They, I feel like they tried to say it without saying like, hey, we're pretty much tapped out. But then you go look at the numbers, they're supposed to be increasing 400,000 barrels, uh, you know, every month and they, they haven't even come close to that. So it, it kind of makes it obvious that the spare capacity at this point is, is largely a myth. Um, I think that was fairly simple to figure out you know, a year ago. Um, now, if, if you go look at just like Saudi Arabia rigs that are out there, like 
they're super low. Like they, they haven't, they just haven't tried that hard yet. Um, yeah. So yes, they, they can do this, but you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lead time that you have to factor in. So can they significantly, uh, you know, bump up production for two years from now, or maybe even for a year from now? Sure. Are they going to be producing a bunch more in three to six months? No. And if the war drags on and, and Europe gets around to some sort of even, even half serious oil uh, import ban from Russia that creates, um, let's say, three million barrels of shut-in production from from Russia instead of the kind of one-ish at the moment. Like that is, I mean, that is so so significant. Um, now, at the same time, you know, we had this crazy like durable goods binge in the U.S. after the fiscal stimulus, and obviously that that created a, a just monumental amount of demand for diesel that's going to fade because the economy is going to slow down. And, and especially for, for durable goods, because I mean, I would, at this point I would hope everyone bought everything they needed and, <laughs> and, and most of it, you know, already got here. So I do think demand can, can wane a little bit, especially, especially in the U S and, and in the West in general, um, just, just fully on the economy slowing and the global economy is going to slow because again, food and food and energy prices, the dollar being really high. Like there's just a lot of headwinds for the global economy. Um, so that that's that can slow demand down a little bit, but even if you go back and look at 08, like oil demand fell by like I don't know two two percent or something. Like it, it takes a lot to really knock over oil demand. Um, so I don't think we can count on that being a significant uh, help. It we really need you know new higher production, and it's just kind of at the moment unclear where that's going to come from. Um, obviously, it's going to be fading uh, in in Russia. OPEC has some, but again, that kind of far out and past that, you know, shales, it, it shale in the U S is making a very methodical comeback. It, but even if they push, push all the way back up, let, let's say they find all of the equipment they need and all the workers they need. And they decide, you know, our investors are just going to have to deal with the fact that we're going to put a bunch of money in the ground again. Even if that happens and they're able to get it back up to like 13 and, and, and we bring back, some Venezuelan and, and Iranian, like I still don't think it's enough. Uh, so I think we are in a, a kind of a structural uh, undersupply market. And that's probably going to be the case, at least I would think for, for three years, but that doesn't mean we can't have like a, uh, you know, a recession induced uh, significant pullback in, in, in oil in the next two, three years. Like that, that's possible, but that doesn't mean that the supply and demand kind of structural dynamics got that much, got, better it just means financially it got cheaper because that that can happen i think a lot of kind of oil nerds lose sight of, of that fact or, or even make fun of the fact that like oh macro doesn't touch oil like well of course it does um <laughs> as far as natural gas though I'm, I'm a lot more optimistic that we're getting closer um i think obviously the price spikes <laughs> in, in europe and the, in the fear of not having russian uh imports have this has created a lot of investment um you see, you know, actual governments talking about it. You see permitting being loosened up throughout Europe. And Europe doesn't have a, a, a ton of natural gas to begin with, but they do have some. Like you look at the UK, mm-hmm. like the UK, obviously Norway, like there, there is some there. And they're the getting, yeah, they're getting a lot more aggressive um, and, and they're pumping up production at, at the moment. But more importantly, they're, they're raising investment. And in the US, you know, with five, six, seven dollar uh, gas, like that, that, I mean, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of gas in the U S so they will go and get it. Um, 
that really really the kind of the, the the governor on the market is just lng export capacity you, you can't just wave a magic wand like those are multi-billion dollar multi-year projects so th- that that is kind of what limits the market from really coming back down in price short term but but i think i think natural gas is, is actually relatively close to being at, at fair value i don't think it's like for the last two years it was it, to me it was a super clearly wildly undervalued and now yeah. i think it's it's coming to the point where like okay the price actually starting to make sense to me um i actually got rid of for the first time in in two years over two years i have no uh, natural gas futures left i, I wow. still have i still have plenty of, of equities but but i I, no futures like it was actually this week i i was like all right well that, that's good enough for me i'm done <laughs> that's fascinating uh, so on the oil point i wanted to ask um one of the surprising things to me has been i mean it, it almost feels like the shale producers in the u.s don't believe it like they're not going to actually start going for it until they see you know that for two or three years prices are going to be elevated and they still are behaving like people to me who think that the bottom is going to drop out of this in six to 12 months um do you think that's fair or or do you think that and you, you sort of wrote about how the the release from the u.s strategic reserve might actually cause them in a weird way to to be more optimistic about the future talk through that point because i thought that was a really well said point yeah, so I, I kind of agree. I think I think a lot of it is just in, investors putting the pressure on them because all they did was light money on fire for a decade. So and they really owed their investors, you know, at least a period of time where they stopped putting money in the ground and put it in people's pocket. Mm. Uh, but but you know now we're like we're that's what's happening. The, the cash flow is is just unbelievable in the, in the oil sector. So they're going to have more than they know what to do with uh, all over the world, but. You know, especially in the U.S. and Canada, and, and double, double especially in Canada. Um, but yeah, going back to the strategic reserve release. So one one of the reasons I don't I don't think we've had that investment uh, lately is if you go go out on the, on the futures curve, everyone's like, oh sure, like oil's tight now. But but again, that going back to like everyone just believed OPEC was going to save us. So if you go out, you know, a year, two, three, four, five years on the futures curve, and, and oil gets radically cheap again. You know, if you think about it, if you're about to go put a billion dollars uh, in, in the ground to try and get more oil, it, it's not necessarily so that you can sell it in, in three months. It, it's more like, you know, like, hey, we're going to be selling this, you know, a year from now at best, probably many years from now. So you, you would kind of like to get some, some signal from the market that they think oil is going to be expensive in the future and not just today. And that that had not happened and really kind of still hasn't. But uh, the, the major SPR release did really flatten uh, that that futures curve, that term structure, to bring bring the price up in those out years uh, a, a good bit. Um, like the the front end got whacked on that news, and and then the out years were actually going up. So that's the kind of thing where if you're you know uh, making an investment decision as a as a CEO of an oil company, um, you can kind of look out at you know maybe the end of next year and the price actually makes sense and you can make money there. And for one thing, you can hedge by using that contract, but but also just as like a pure signal standpoint, it gives you a little bit better uh, a feeling about where you're headed. And I wrote in that piece, like I, I don't necessarily think the White House knew that when they did it, or that you know smart to think like, oh, here's what we're gonna do to the futures curve. Uh, I think it's just you know really like, hey, just we just gotta do anything to get this gas price down. But I think they may have accidentally done something that's gonna help the oil market, um, which is which is a good thing. 
it's remarkable to me that people actually blame the white house for gas prices yeah like there there are many things i blame the white house for and that i get mad about our government for but like high gas prices i i i can't i struggle to get in the mindset of someone who who blames the white house for that but um I also wanted to ask, and this is one of those scenarios where most of the people I'm talking to agree with you right now. I, I agree with you. Is there a bear case for oil the next six to 12 months that we're not thinking about? Can you, I have not been able to think of one. I wonder if you've been able to think of one. Uh, to me, the, the, only, the only one would be like a significant demand destruction event. So it would have to be sort of an, ex, like an exogenous shock. So something that brought you know a third of Chinese demand offline and it stayed that way for six months or, you know, it had to be something that you can't really foresee and, and something significant that hit demand because the supply side is, is not that difficult to kind of model out just by looking at, you know, capital expenditures and, and, and things like that. And that, that really isn't, doesn't appear to be the answer anytime soon. Um, are the, are the COVID-19 lockdowns in China enough for you to mull that over or not big enough? So I think short term, sure, but you know, is that going to be a you know a sustainable long term problem? I, I just I just doubt it. And and if you look at you know Chinese imports, like they they have fallen off a good bit. So like I do think that is significant, but but again, it's kind of significant short term. I I just assume at some point they they quit on COVID zero or it quits on them. So I I, I doubt it. <laughs> Uh, she is not talking like somebody who's going to give up, but we will see. No, that's um, it's been pretty stunning. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, in some ways, I respect leaders who go down with the ship like that. I felt the same way about Husni Mubarak in 2011 when it was the Arab Spring, and everybody said he was going to leave, and like he was supposed to give his concession speech. And I was telling every, I was at Stratford at the time. I remember we were all waiting for the speech, and I was like, guys, he's not. And I was like this young analyst nobody took seriously. Like, There's no way he's going to resign. And everybody's like, no, he's going to resign. And then he goes on stage and he's like, I'm the father of the Egyptian people. I'm not leaving this office. And then it like cuts out. Anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I, I like it when leaders double down and stick to their guns like that. Definitely doing that. Um, before we leave energy, coal prices, any, any insights there? Because I mean, the one thing, the, I don't think the Europeans are going to go after natural gas or oil with Russia at all in the next 12 months. I'm I'm pretty confident in that take, but the coal ban, and it only kicks in in August, but now we're talking about something that's fairly significant and that's a fairly tight market. And if you think folks haven't been investing in oil, I mean, let, let's talk about yeah, coal for absolutely. a second, which still powers much of Asia. So do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm still bullish. Like I have taken some some profits uh, just because, I mean, most of the stocks I bought, you know, have gone up many times over at this point. Um. But for one thing, I mean, it's just like it's just the natural relief valve for when for when gas prices go up. So that that just is like almost like embedded. Uh, and yeah, like this the production and and how how tight it is 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 just kind of unbelievable. Like I don't know where we're gonna get coal from. If you look just in the U.S., I mean, just the U.S. producers, they they basically all sold out all their supply for like two three years. So like you you can't you can call them, but they're just gonna be like, yeah, sorry. Uh, in a, yeah. in obviously U.S. exports have popped and they're at multi-year highs, uh, and production it just really struggles because there's no investment. No one no one wants to put money in it. Everyone views it as like a terminal a terminal bet. Like okay, this has like this is going to end in like four years. So how do I how do I value your cash flows for that? Hmm. And we still haven't had the the like rec the recognition that that's not true and that we have to have this stuff so that you better give them money. Um, and, and when it comes to all the fossil fuels, I think, 
I think really that's kind of what it comes down to is the lack of investment. And, and I don't just mean like the company doesn't take some cash flow and, and, and reinvest it or, you know, that governments don't help. I, what, I, what I mostly mean is, is the trillions of dollars of, of money that's being managed uh, globally, whether that be, you know, your neighborhood financial advisor or, it, or, or, it's, you know, major pensions and, and sovereign wealth funds and endowments, like most of that money does not touch fossil fuels anymore. And that's most of the money. So more than half of the world's assets under management won't do it. And when that happens, you get really cheap stocks uh, and they're structurally cheap because they don't get any flows. Whereas, you know, you, you look at like the S P 500, it just gets more and more flows all the time. So it's just, it's kind of difficult for it to go down. Um, but then you end up with like this price signal where say, again, you're the CEO of pick a fossil fuel and their company. And you look at your stock price and you go, I have no reason to invest money like the none. So they don't. And I think that the signaling from very cheap equity um, is part of the problem. Like they're not going to invest because no one invests in them. And I, it's really difficult for me to see that changing in, in coal. One of the things I kind of looked for this year and last year was some some significant changes in attitudes towards fossil fuels. And you've seen it a little bit, but but not much. And especially for, for, for coal and, and hey, rightfully so from the environmental standpoint. Um, and we, I, I guess we've seen a, a bit of a, a move in, in uranium and in nuclear in general. Um, this, this, you know, this past week we saw Europe's made a little bit of a move, uh, the U S kind of, but not really. And then, uh, South Korea this week. So that, that has actually happened, but, you still haven't seen anyone really embrace oil and natural gas. Well, natural gas a little bit in Europe, I guess, but, but globally, especially from the investment standpoint, you know, like seeing a, a massive like endowment or pension or something, you know, like, you know what, we were wrong. We're going to get back in fossil fuels. This was dumb. Like that, that would be a, a really big signal to me. And that's the kind of stuff I thought would happen by now, especially after the invasion. And I, maybe it's happened and I haven't seen it, but, but I have not seen it. No, I, I don't think it's happening. I mean, it's and it's weird. It's all kind of virtue signaling about climate stuff. I'm I've I've cared about climate change for years now, but I mean, we're just we're making the perfect the enemy of the good and using this stuff for political reasons, which is in some ways even worse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's there are really good ways to mitigate, uh, car, you know, CO two, and and we just somehow chose to not do any of them and to find some 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 dumb ones. Yeah. Um, I think sort of last thing before I just open it up for us, because the, the one other thing I had on my list, um, I sort of went through one of the last things you sent, and I found myself agreeing with you on most things, like long Brazil, long Latam, short Egypt, definitely. Egypt's a dumpster fire, short India. Uh, but I saw you were also short Turkey, and I wanted to talk about that for a hot minute, because uh, it's up. It's up like 20% on the month. The Istanbul yeah. Exchange or whatever it is is up a third on well, the year. That's why I'm not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. Anymore. So I okay, actually, cool. I actually got, I actually closed all country shorts, which I shouldn't have. I should have kept Egypt, Egypt on, but I just got, I got rid of all of them. Huh. But yeah, but go on. Like, it doesn't mean we don't have to, we can't talk about it. Well, no, just curious what your thought process was on being short Turkey. And then kind of what, was it just the, you know, the, it, it, it scared you off or do you think, do, do you have a fundamentally different outlook on it now? Like talk to me about your thought process there. I'm curious. 
Sure. Um, so I think this would be fun because I've heard you talk about the the, the currency uh, tricks, the tr- the charades there. So um, well, smoke and mirrors, we, but you know, smoke yeah, and mirrors. I think, does I think we have. I, I think so. So I think we have a different a different uh, perspective there. So I think this could be good. Um, but but really, the, the the fundamental like reason I was short um, all these countries, and I was short Pakistan for a while, and I should have stayed short Pakistan. It, it was just people that like any any country that would be hurt by uh, rising energy and rising dollar. Um, and rising food. So anyone that has to import a lot of a lot of food and energy and doesn't have enough dollars laying around, I figure they would they would get hurt. And we are seeing that. But at the same time, uh, yeah, I mean Turkey. So I, I kind of break the world out in different regions. Um, and and in, in the in the region that I have Turkey in, which doesn't won't make sense to other people, so I won't even say it. But it, uh, I mean, it's just crushing the rest of its competition. You know, around like the whether it be Africa or um, East Med, uh, Middle East, like it, I mean, it is just crushing all of them. It, it, their equity market's having a very good year. But going back, going, so going back to the currency thing, another one of the reasons I, I am bearish, I just don't know how long it takes for it to become a thing, is I do think it's it's kind of smoke and mirrors. It has like a, a embedded an embedded kind of bomb in it where what they're essentially saying is, give us your money and we'll guarantee that you won't lose any, you know, and the way that we will guarantee that you won't lose any is we will take it on the fiscal balance sheet. So basically what they're saying is we'll print it. So if you get into a situation where the, where the currency kind of like, for whatever reason comes, you know, un, un, unhinged and starts to really fall, then all the people that have those deposits go to the government. Like, cool. You said you'd, you'd, you'd kind of, you know, plus us up to get us to even here. So give us our money. If they held true to that and you're like, okay, yeah, like here's your money. They would have to do that with deficit spending, which they can't afford to do. So that, I mean, they'd have to print it. And that, that becomes a, a reinforcing loop to me where the currency goes down and you print money to make people whole. And then that makes the currency go down and then you print people, print money to make people whole. So that would have to break through saying just kidding to those depositors at some point or, or, you know, just having a really fun hyperinflation party. Yeah. I mean, we've at CI, we've been long Turkey since November, since like, you know, he Erdogan really went crazy about the interest rates and fired the central bank governor and things went badly. And I will say that for me, the thesis is more about, um, an overreaction rather. I'm not saying that Turkey is like rainbows and chocolates and everything it's just not quite as bad i think as everybody else is saying Uh, the first redemptions for that policy you're talking about with the turkish lira and guaranteeing those foreign currency and other deposits in the turkish lira that that happened at the beginning of this month price tag was around 800 million for the turkish government so i'm with you right there that's going to be a a pretty tough bill the currency has barely moved so that that's kind of scary well it's but but hey like to this point it's worked you know well, that's the thing, though. So, I mean, that's the first redemption from when they started the policy in January, when gotcha. there still okay. was movement. So, the, the interesting thing, and in, in, in some ways, the inexplicable thing to me is that the currency really hasn't moved. It's been stuck mm-hmm. between fourteen and fifteen, you know, on the dollar for almost a full month now, and it's been pretty tame. Um, and I've been trying to explain because I think you're right about the food and energy problem. But one of the things I think has gone unnoticed is that, you know, Turkey was very brash about the Ukraine conflict at the beginning. They have been anything but since and they are importing like double the amount of Russian wheat than anybody else. Their energy access with Russia is still good. They're still buying. So in some sense, they've engineered things so that they're just getting maybe cheaper 
like versions of these Russian supplies going forward, you kind of add into that um, a, a weaker lira. It, it challenges a lot of things, but it does supercharge their exports. And that's the one thing they're really good at. They're the only ones in the region who make things and they're in a really, really yeah. great location. And then I think the other really interesting thing is that foreign investors have basically run away. As far as I can tell, you know, the people, I, I haven't met anybody else like me, like and us at CI, where, where we're long Turkish equities, to the extent that I know anybody who's in it, they're short. And the short interest yeah. is really high on some of these, these ETFs. Um, but the thing that's happening on the backside of that is that Turkish domestic investors are buying Turkish stocks. And they're doing that because all their fixed in- income instruments in Turkey suck because of what right. the country's yeah, I mean, food, doing. Food inflation is 60% and the policy rate's 14%. Like that's, that's significant. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, like you say, like that. But they're going to bid up stocks. Yeah. So I think that's what's going on. But uh, you know, I I can also I can make an equally compelling case. Case like you said. I mean, they import seventy plus percent of their energy, a lot of their food. Uh, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors with this currency stuff. All it takes, you know, they've managed to stabilize market sentiment. But if it went south again, do they really have the money to back it up when the chips are really down on the table? Um, those are all really scary things. But. I don't know, just just geopolitically and from a macro perspective, like you said, they're not Egypt. They're not, you know, some of these countries that are around them. And I also think long term, there's an interesting thing happening energy wise where they realize if you take Russia off the map, like they're the only option because like Iranian oil and gas and Iraqi and Azerbaijani and stuff in the East Med, like all that stuff kind of has to go through Turkey and they have found some stuff in the Black Sea too. So I think they're, I think Turkey's also dreaming of this future where they're actually an energy hub or maybe even an energy exporter. And there's a lot of gas in those kind of contested areas with, with them in Greece. So speaking of Greece is one that just announced they're about to start putting billions of dollars into trying to find some, some uh, gas off the coast. Mm-hmm. So um yeah it's, it's it's a very interesting way of looking at it and and to your point like some of the best investments are just when something just finally bottoms out as just being so bad and becomes a little bit less bad um and yeah. and when and you know on the currency shenanigans i'll call them it, it's a hell mary but but i think at the end of the day it is one that can work so if he puts the currency to sleep long enough for to get kind of the the macro backdrop back under control then he can kind of ease back out of that and say, okay, like we don't, you don't need it anymore because the currency is fine. So we're taking it away and maybe you can kind of, you know, do that without, without having a problem. I think that's obviously very difficult for them to pull off, but it isn't impossible. And I think, and I think that's noteworthy. Well, and he's only got to do it for a year. He's, he's got a yeah, presidential yeah. election in about a year. And if he can get, if he can win that election and win it kind of, you know, with, with his party dominating, like he's set, for kind of a long time. And this is the other kind of leading indicator with him. You know, he's inflation's over 60% right now in Turkey. It's it's and it's surging above even their central bank estimates, which I assumed were very aggressive so that people didn't get surprised. There's no riots in the streets. There's no political opposition coming up against Erdogan. His poll numbers have actually gone up in the last couple months. So some part of me thinks that maybe Turks like what he's like something something in the mix is right and I, I'm even as somebody who's long I'm like struggling to explain exactly what it is but the market is telling us something um so yeah, yeah I'm I mean just trying to read you, the tea leaves you look at the equity chart it is definitely telling us something like I, that I cannot argue with I, I've been basically a, a turkey perma bear for years so I, but I, I I understand where you're coming from and, and I always wanted to like get to a point where I could get long because the potential, like you say, I mean, they they make and export a lot of stuff, and they're good at it. It's not, you know, you look at something like the the, the drones they export; those things are really good. Like 
they, yeah. they make a big difference for people. And that's not the only technology that, that they're really good with. Um, so yeah, to your point, like the, the, the potential is really, really there. So if they can just kind of have decent governance, they, it could really run. So I, I definitely appreciate the, the thoughts behind the trade. Yeah. Um, I know you've got a hard stop, Chase. Anything I didn't ask you or any parting thoughts you want to, pearls of wisdom you want to share with our listeners? Um, no, like the only thing I think of is like I do, going back to the inflation thing, I just want to kind of hammer away at it. Like I, the, the, there's going to be a slowdown coming. You, if you, it's kind of clear that in, in the US, the way, the way to kind of slow things down is to slow down financial conditions, is to tighten them. And the only way they can do that is to engineer problems in the market. Uh, and some people kind of refer to this, to this as a Fed call. We're so used to the Fed put where, hey, if stocks go down, the Fed steps in and makes it all better for you. Well, now I think it's to the point where they have to get incrementally more hawkish until they break the market. They need to break the market. It's kind of their mission at this point so that they can tighten financial conditions so they have, actually have a chance of of really getting inflation back under control because I think it's starting to scare them a little bit. And hey, rightfully so. Like You don't want expectations to come unhinged. You don't want wages to come unhinged because that's a really difficult problem to fix. And if you think the Fed's going to break stuff with this tightening or the tightening in 2018, you know, it, just imagine how much they would break if they had to catch up to you know 15% inflation again, like, like the 70s. Um, so from that perspective, I get what they're doing. But I, I do think they're basically going to throw everything at this right when it was going to start taking care of itself anyway. So I, I think we're going to have a, a significant slowdown. And, and so I think being being over your skis in financial assets, in even commodities, uh, it could be, you know, you could be in for a bad ride. I think most investors have had a, a really good two or three years. And I think, you know, if, if you're 100% in all that, like it, maybe taking a couple pennies, a couple chips off the table and taking them to the cage and, you know, walking home, like may, may not be a terrible idea for the, for the rest of 2022, especially in the, in the second half. And I, and I've, I've been really bullish, you know, for, for months, years, but I think things have changed a little bit um, with the way the fed is going to have to treat the markets. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> you can find uh, Chase's research at pineconemacro.com. We'll also put all that in the intro. Chase, thanks so much. Good luck to the Cavs, and we'll have you back on soon. All right. Go Cavs. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.